Good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, welcome to those of you who are here and who are watching online. Hi, baby John. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Have you ever had a moment when you knew that you were loved? And I don't just mean like intellectual acknowledgement of something you've been told. Like, yes, yes, Jesus loves me, this I know. Um, and I don't even mean when um, some grand gesture communicated to you that someone loved you, but a moment that you knew you were loved. A moment when, for no discernible reason, you suddenly knew, deep down, that you were enough. Maybe it was one of those moments where you were captivated by the beauty of a sunset, and you suddenly realized that you too were a part of this world, just as worthy of love as the sunset you admired. Or maybe you were in a place of worship, um, feeling overwhelmed by the presence of a God whose love is all-encompassing. Maybe you were caught up in laughing with your family and friends when, for a moment, the joy made you forget your fear of not belonging. Or maybe you were at rock bottom, feeling completely alone, when suddenly, despite all evidence to the contrary, you knew you weren't. One of those moments that I remember was in the spring of 2020. Um, it was by no means a glamorous moment. Um, I was sitting on the tiny patio outside my apartment in my pajamas in a rickety folding chair with a bowl of raspberries. Um, I was listening to the downstairs neighbors argue and smelling weed from the next building over. I was grieving a pregnancy loss the month before, um, right at the beginning of the COVID lockdown. And I was very unsure of the future, like everyone else in April of 2020. For me, the illusion of control had been stripped away. And with no baby, no conferences coming up to present at, nowhere to be and no reason even to wear clothes, it felt like suddenly I had nothing in which to anchor my identity. It was just me, the me that I occasionally sort of despise when she's not hiding behind a curriculum vitae or a carefully curated persona. And so I was sitting on the patio with my raspberries feeling exposed. But then I had one of those moments. I wish I could describe it, but it was, it was a settling, a calm, a peace. A moment where, despite everything, I knew that I was enough. I felt that I was seen, that I was known, and despite that, or perhaps somehow, even because of it, I was loved. These moments come to us sometimes as unexpected gifts but they seem to leave us as quickly as they come. And they're often not very glamorous. And in fact, it seems like they most often tend to come when we are at our ugliest, at our most exposed, when our accomplishments and successes and titles can't mask the fear that at the core of ourself, there is nothing. This is the human condition that characterizes world three, a sense of emptiness, an aching void, W. Paul Jones calls it. It's a, like a latent anxiety that no matter what we do, it means nothing because we are nobody. And if others could see through the facade, if they really knew us, they wouldn't like us. We've never really outgrown our adolescent identity crisis. Uh, as a popular eighth grader once told me through sobs, underneath it all, I just, I don't know who I am, but I guess you wouldn't understand. Oh, but I do. <laughs> And so we try to fill this emptiness, to numb the anxiety, to drown out the noisy threat of nothingness. 
we might acquire or accumulate or surround ourselves with things so that things can become a proxy for the self. Or we might be workaholics, believing to ourselves that if we have value to the corporate world, then maybe it doesn't matter if we have intrinsic value. We might distract ourselves by watching Netflix or doom scrolling because when we're alone with ourselves, the emptiness confronts us. But this emptiness and many of the ways that we try to fill it keeps us from living fully. It keeps us from being present in the world and loving others as fully and freely as we might want. Because in our preoccupation with the self, we end up with what theologian Paul Tillich calls this strange mixture of selfishness and self-hate that we can't seem to escape and that sometimes makes us hate ourselves even more. But sometimes, in the midst of our self-centeredness and fear and vulnerability, we have these moments that, despite everything, we know that we are loved. Tillich calls these moments of grace. In his well-known sermon, You Are Accepted, he says, and it's worth quoting in full, grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. Sometimes, at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. And if you find yourself as a resident of World 3, I would recommend that you read the sermon in full. It is excellent. But we find one of these moments of grace that Tillich talks about at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This moment in Luke's gospel comes at a rather remarkable point in Jesus' ministry, the beginning. We know, having read this text before, that there are amazing things to come, miraculous healings, life-changing teachings. Jesus will feed hungry crowds, he will raise people from the dead, and he will give up his own life in the ultimate self-sacrifice. But none of that has happened yet. Jesus has done nothing to merit such a proclamation of divine favor. Instead, God's love for and delight in Jesus is rooted in who he is, God's son. This moment of Jesus' baptism is recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but with slight variations in each gospel that emphasize different aspects of the encounter. So in Matthew's gospel, the voice from heaven says something a little bit different. It says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The content is the same, but the intent is different. Because in Matthew, this is a proclamation of Jesus' identity to those around him. This is my son. But in Luke's gospel, the words are for Jesus himself. An intimate moment of grace in which Jesus is assured of his identity. 
of his belovedness, of his innate worth apart from his public ministry. You are my son, the beloved. Hearing these words spoken about us is affirming. Hearing them spoken to us is healing. But another thing that I notice about this moment is how brief it is, just two verses in each gospel. The moment is powerful, but fleeting. And immediately after this experience, Luke tells us, Jesus was alone in the wilderness for 40 days. Plenty of time for those doubts to seep back in, for this mountaintop moment to lose its luster. Plenty of time for the voice from heaven to become faint and hard to remember. And then came another voice, one intent on undermining the voice of God. If you are God's son, command this stone to become bread. If you worship me, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours. If you are really God's son, throw yourself down from here. Jesus' responses to the devil are brief, consisting only of the quotations from scripture, and the narrator doesn't really give us any insight into what is going on in Jesus' head. We're left to imagine. But given the gospel's chronology, that the temptations come right after Jesus' baptism, and given the devil's repeated qualifier, if you are the son of God, I wonder if Jesus was clinging to the affirmation that he received at his baptism, repeating it to himself. I wonder if he was trying to recreate that moment of grace, to picture again the way the heavens opened, to hold on to the details, to remember how he felt in that moment. I wonder if he was trying to remember it strongly enough that the memory of that moment could carry him through when all he felt was doubt and all he heard was contempt. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. The language here anticipates the mockery of the onlookers at Jesus' crucifixion. If he is God's chosen one, let him save himself. And at its root, this is the temptation to self-preservation, the same temptation that the Israelites faced while wandering in the wilderness. When they were hungry, God provided daily bread, manna, to feed them. But they couldn't trust that it would be there the next day. And so they collected it and they hoarded it, trying to preserve themselves. This is the story that Jesus references in his response to the devil. One does not live by bread alone. For Jesus, as well as the Israelites, the temptation was physical. When the body is threatened, the instinctual response is to protect ourselves by any means possible. For those in world three, it's this existential emptiness that threatens the self. But the temptation is the same, to preserve the self at all costs, to guard ourselves against pain and discomfort, to fill the gnawing emptiness and keep vulnerability and weakness as far away from us as we can. Instead of bread, some of us fill ourselves up with things, buying, acquiring, upgrading, hoping that maybe our possessions can make up for the emptiness, can become a, a kind of stand-in for the self that we fear is a nobody. And then fearing the loss of self, we fear the loss of what we have accumulated. And so, like God's people in the wilderness, with the manna we conserve and hoard. And for some of us, the temptation to self-preservation shows itself in our defensiveness, when we can't accept criticism, when we can't admit that we are wrong, when we can't show vulnerability or weakness in relationships because it might reveal the naked, unlovable self. 
And friends, a confession. I am a master of bad apologies. Not because I never say I'm sorry, but because I say it all the time, holding it out in front of me like a shield to protect myself from others' anger or disappointment. I apologize sometimes not to heal relationships, but to preserve the self. But self-preservation keeps us from intimacy. It keeps us from loving freely. It keeps us from being open to the world because we're so focused on hoarding bread for ourselves. But think back to a moment when you experienced the grace of being enough. In the midst of the temptation to self-preservation, can you remember that moment as Jesus remembered his? Can you let it anchor you as you feel the pain of vulnerability? You are my child, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. But I will give you the glory and the authority of the kingdoms of the world. If you worship me, it will all be yours. In this moment at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has to decide what it will look like for him to be the Messiah. Will he be a powerful political ruler, a king? Or will he be the unexpected Messiah that takes the hard and unglamorous road to the cross? Can he be so confident in who he is that he can say no to the temptation of power and status? Is his belovedness enough to fuel a ministry in which he has no place to lay his head? In which he heals in secret? In which he dies the shameful death of a common criminal? But in this moment, and over and over again throughout his ministry, Jesus chooses to say no to status. He flees the crowds that would make him king. And in the end, king becomes only a mockery written on a sign above his thorn-crowned head and bleeding body. And it is his belovedness that gives him the strength to make such a choice. When the self is threatened by emptiness, the temptation to status and prestige is so strong. We hope that having status can make us worthy of love. We hope that a title can mask the emptiness, and if not to ourselves, then at least to others. We can convince them that we are somebody, even if we can't convince ourselves. And so we engage in what Jones calls the frantic effort of facade, and we trade in God's affirmation of our belovedness for a little metal nameplate on an office door. We convince ourselves that in the kingdoms of the world lies life to the full. But then why do we never seem to feel fulfilled? Why does the search for status so often seem to pull us away from the most beautiful and meaningful things in life? Remember that moment that you knew you were worthy not because of anything that you've accomplished, but because you are beloved. Can the peace that you felt in that moment enable you to say no to power and prestige, to stop being productive and rest, to let someone else have the spotlight? You are my child, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. In Matthew, the order of the temptations is reversed. The last temptation is to the kingdoms of the world. But here in Luke, this temptation is the one, the climax that the others have been building towards. That phrase shows up again. If you are God's Son, 
And to add to the allure, here the devil himself quotes scripture, a beautiful and comforting text from the Psalms. He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. This text comes from Psalm 91, a psalm full of similar language and promises of divine protection. And its assurance sounds so confident that this psalm actually has a history of being used as a kind of magical incantation, being placed under pillows or worn in amulets to ward off evil or harm. But the way that the devil uses it is even more nefarious, as a temptation for Jesus to prove his sonship, to prove his belovedness, to make God show again what God has already shown. The temptation for us to prove our belovedness runs deep. It leads us to desperately seek validation from people whose validation we do not need and to seek it in ways that are unhealthy for us, that increase our insecurity instead of fixing it. We become addicted to affirmation through our work and performance, through our relationships and sexuality. If we can find someone who loves us enough or enough people who love us, then maybe it can fill the emptiness. Or maybe we even self-sabotage relationships to see if, even at our most difficult, even when we push others away, we are still worthy of love. But testing our worth, trying to prove it to ourselves, trying to recreate shallow imitations of these moments of divine grace, it keeps us stuck in an endless loop where instead of freeing us to live fully, God's declaration of our belovedness is twisted by the tempter, consigning us to search for ways to test it over and over and over again. But think back to a moment you knew you were beloved. Can you let it free you from the unending search for what you already have? You are my child, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Those moments we feel accepted, those moments we feel enough, those moments we feel beloved, they're an invitation to live fully into who we were created to be, who we already are, if we could believe it. And when our moments of grace fade away, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, deep in our anxiety and fear and emptiness, we are called to live by faith. And faith is not about believing the right things. No, it's far scarier than that. Faith is living into a reality that we can't always see or feel, a reality of which we are not always convinced. It is the vulnerability of living out a truth we do not always believe. It's having the audacity to live as though we are God's beloved when the world, or maybe our own self, tells us we are not. But when the emptiness inside you is a hunger demanding to be filled, when the allure of kingdoms beckons, when a voice whispers, if you are God's beloved, did God really say that? Can you live into and be sustained by the moments of grace that you have known? Can you live into the reality that you felt so clearly in that moment? Can you live as though it's true, even when you doubt, even when the memory has become a whisper, drowned out by the voices that question it? Whether you are male or female or non-binary, 
young or old, gay or straight, black, white, or Latino, can you believe that you were created good, that you are God's beloved? If you suffer from depression, if you are with someone who makes you feel worthless, or if society has rendered you invisible, can you believe that you are worthy of love? And can you hold on to that truth when you feel otherwise? Can you remember it when the only voices you hear are telling you to earn it, to prove it, to protect yourself? And if you could believe it, if you could believe it, what would change? The whole point is that you do not need to do anything. The reality of your belovedness is entirely apart from anything that you do. But if you lived into that reality, if you held on to the truth that you believed in those fleeting moments of grace, if you lived as though you are loved, what could you do? How could you live? What changes would you make? Maybe you could risk something daring, something bold, something beautiful. Maybe you could love with the same abandon with which you are loved. Or maybe, if you really knew you were loved, you could let go of the need to be productive and rest. Maybe you could bask in the beauty of the world, receiving the present as a divine gift. Maybe, if you really believed it, you could let your defenses down, and maybe for the first time in your life you could be vulnerable enough to admit to someone you love that you were wrong. Maybe you could make a real apology. If you could, for a moment, believe the truth that you are beloved, maybe you could let yourself breathe. And if you could live as though it's true, even in the wilderness, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe you would find that the self you've been searching for has been there all along, fully known and fully loved. You are my child, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Amen.